0: At the end of of chapter 26, we pick up in verse 20, and this is the postscript to the hymn that we looked at last week. The postscript is the instructions to the remnant in Isaiah's day. The hymn foretold of a great and glorious messianic age, which we are living in now, but in Isaiah's day, they needed to bide their time. They needed to wait on the Lord and be patient. And look what the instructions to Isaiah and the remnant are. Starting in verse 20, it says... Come, my people, enter your chambers. That is, go into the secret place. Keep your head down, All right? Don't bother the neighbors, because um, the tyrant does not have your will in uh, in his heart. Your best, wi- your best, in his heart. And shut your doors behind you. <clears throat> like now's not the time to be uh, picketing and. And screaming and hollering, hollering and raising up in revolt. Rather, the time is to hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it and will no more cover its slain. So you could think of the illustration in the Passover when the death angel was passing. When judgment was coming on a nation, what were the people to do? That wasn't the time to be out there in the streets bloviating and hollering and and, uh, being really engaged in the public square. That was the time to get in your house with your family and shut the door until he passed by. So while we are called, generally speaking, to engage and to to, uh, publicly proclaim and to um, stand on the rooftops and shout, there are times in the life of the church... When it's wise to um, mind your manners and keep your head down. There are times. I don't think we're necessarily in those times yet in our country. But one day we may be in those times. There may come a time, um, and our brothers from other countries can tell you that you might not want to post some things on social media. Because you might get a knock on your door. And and you might not want to um, mess around with an IRS audit. Because they have guns and they hate you. And uh, so there are some times, because of the size of the tyrant's guns and his animosity towards you and the intensity of the persecution and the lack of liberty, that you keep your head down. Right? you got to know when to hold them and you got to know when to fold them. I think that's a good way one philosopher said. <laughs> right? Did Daniel, for example, lead an armed revolution against Babylon? No. Did Moses lead an armed revolution against Egypt? Yes. Remember, he murdered the Egyptian. And God said, no, no, now's not the time for that. See, now there's a time to fight, and then there's a time to to not fight. Did uh, the zealots during Jesus' lifetime, what were the zealots? Does anyone know about the zealots? You have the the various groups in Jesus' lifetime, and I want you to know these because it's going to come up in my sermon series. You have the Pharisees. They're like the um, traditionalists, the make America great again, uh, conservative. We just need to get the right guy in the office with the right laws, and we're going to this, get this country back, back together again. Then you've got the Sadducees. They're like the progressives, the liberals, the LGBT. We need to get with the times. need to be relevant. We need to uh, compromise certain things. And, uh, and then you have the Essenes, and they're like the fundamentalists. Um, they're just like, let's just get out of town and, and wear bonnets and don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with the girls who do, don't watch television or go to the movie house. And that's how if we all do that, that's how we're going to you know, save this country. And then you had the zealots and they were like uh, BLM or Antifa. They were like Hamas. They were terrorists. And, uh, and they engaged in revolutionary actions against the state to rise up. And, uh, and Jesus, of course, throughout the Gospels, rebukes all of these groups, And because none of these groups understood that the reason Israel was under the domination of the Romans was not because they didn't have the right guy in the office. It wasn't because they didn't have the right policies. It wasn't because um, they were sitting on their, on their laurels and not rising up and standing up for justice. The reason was they turned against God, Right. And so Jesus is saying none of these solutions will work because the root problem is you are on the wrong side of God. There has to be repentance. There has to be poverty of spirit. Who is it that inherits the kingdom of heaven? It's those who have poverty of spirit, who first go to Jesus with empty hands saying, save us. That's the only solution. And any group that doesn't start there is not going to enjoy the blessings of the kingdom or the future. Make sense? So in times of tyranny, we must realize the reason in our country, the reason we have increasing tyranny and persecution is because of apostasy of the church. And, uh, and taking out our, our guns and, and, and foaming at the mouth and raging and screaming is not going to change anything unless there's repentance. Make sense? In the days of Jeremiah... You, you have the exact same situation. The Babylonians were coming, and God said, they're coming, and I sent them because of your sin. And Jeremiah said, hey, everyone, surrender. Just surrender. And everyone that surrendered was protected and saved, but, but the mass of Israel, they stood up and they fought the Babylonians, and what did they call Jeremiah? Un, a troublemaker, unpatriotic unpatriotic, that's right, a rabble-rouser. Um, and, uh, but Jeremiah was just preaching God's Word that the, pr- the problem isn't politics. The problem is your relationship with God, first and foremost. Amen? So does this mean, though, that while we enter our chambers and shut our doors and hide ourselves for a little while, when that time comes, and that time is already here to some extent, not totally, right? I think in Louisiana we have a, quite a bit of a buffer but this that when this time comes does this mean we don't do anything that we just sit around and wait for the rapture Right no no we we still have to do some things but we're doing things off the radar right off the radar keep your head down a little bit that's all that's all we continue to build schools and we keep the school off the radar right and we keep teaching and we keep preaching and we wait for God to bring repentance to his church. And we surprise the enemy from his left flank. But there are times when you do a full-scale frontal attack. And there are other times where you have to lie and wait for the right time to attack. Amen? All right. So I hope that you all understand what I'm saying. And, uh, and maybe have some thoughts on that. Any thoughts or any questions? Do you understand what I'm saying? Not saying apathy or complacency or laziness but there are times when you need to enter your chamber and shut your doors behind you and hide yourself for a little while. Make sense? Because the tyrant is raging because of the church's apostasy. When you see the church repent, that's when it's time to surprise attack, but you got to wait for a little while. And do we have the peace of God that enables us to wait and and be patient? We're not desperate. We don't need to be desperate. Right. We know that the future is bright, even if the short term future isn't going to be bright. Amen. I hope you understand that. Um, and, uh, and this also means, I think, that we, we all need a chamber. We all need a hiding place. We all need a, uh, a place to go. Shut the door where we can continue to serve the Lord and continue to stand up for what's right and do what we're called to do in our vocations. And I really do think Christ Church Academy and Christ Church And our community does afford us that sort of a chamber. We can really do a lot of work for the kingdom of heaven and not be on the front of the newspaper and not be under investigation by the the FBI and not get in anybody's hair down at uh, Rainbow Jihad headquarters. Right? Anyway, when you do which strategy? Well, that takes wisdom. And I'm not trying to say when exactly or to what degree. I'm just saying that is one of the plays. OK, that is one of the plays. We don't we're not one trick ponies. We can we can we can lateral. We can run it up the middle. We can hail Mary. We have a lot of different plays that we can run. Amen. Let's move on. Move on to uh, chapter 27, verse one. In that day. All right, someone remind me, what does that phrase in Isaiah mean? In that day, he says it a million times. The day of the, the well, the, the messianic age, the day when Jesus starts to rule and reign, which began 2,000 years ago at the ascension. In that day, right, so now he goes to the future. He goes back to the future. This is a prophecy of the future. In that day, some day off in the future, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish leviathan the fleeing serpent wait be patient maybe duck your head for a little while and for israel that was a long while because they were about to be destroyed by the babylonians so keep your head down when nebuchadnezzar comes to town because there's nothing you could do about it this is for me then who was after the babylonians the persian empire under cyrus the great then who was after the persians the persian empire lost to the greeks in i think the early 400s at marathon and then it was the greek empire rose up who dominated the the land of palestine the greeks and then who and then the romans that time between the old testament and the new testament between malachi and matthew 400 years the the palestinian world was dominated by greeks by the greek culture by the greek tyrants herod the great wasn't A Jew, Herod the Great was a half Jew, if I remember correctly, and he was in bed with Rome, so they were under dominance. When Isaiah said this, from the Babylonians they were coming, and they were going to have to keep their head down. And if you get slapped in the right cheek, what do you do? When you're keeping your head down, what do you do? You turn the left cheek, because otherwise you get a knife in the heart, right? There's, (laughs) right? If he says take your take your cloak, take carry my stuff one mile, yes, sir, carry two miles. You know, you gotta, sometimes you got to be like Daniel in Babylon or like Ezra in uh, Persia. you gotta, you got to know how, when to hold them and when to fold them. Make sense? And they were going to have to do that. But in that day, one day, Israel, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. One day, he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So... Those of you who've been studying the Bible for a long time, what is that's poetic language? Obviously, what is Leviathan literally? No, literally, it's a dragon, serpent. It's a dinosaur. Um, if you read the descriptions of Leviathan in the Book of Job, in the Book of Isaiah, and in, in the Psalms, if I remember correctly, um, long, massive tail, breathes fire, swims and plays in the sea, can't be grabbed with a hook. Like, do what? It's Smog, yeah, from the Hobbit. It's a dragon, it's a dragon, and uh, and the other dragon or dinosaur in the Bible is called Behemoth, and it was like a marsh dwelling, massive, uh, I don't know, brontosaurus of some type, and uh, and liberal scholars say that the Earth is uh, eighty billion years old or three hundred fifty billion years old or however old it is, they say, and that dinosaurs died off before humans, but the Bible says that there were dinosaurs and humans living at the same time, and, um, and I think there's evidence of it scientifically, and uh, of course, I presuppose the Bible is true, so I interpret facts differently than atheists, and, uh, and the Bible talks about these particular dinosaurs, and Leviathan is one of them. Uh, liberals will say Leviathan is an alligator, but that's not real impressive if God's like, one day, I'm going to take care of the alligator. Like, <laughs> like I could, I grabbed that alligator by the tail. I actually grabbed one and And brought it in the boat once okay so it's not real impressive and and they say behemoth is a hippopotamus not once again not impressive right no it's these are these are long ago extinct uh, dinosaurs and but that's what it literally was but it's a personification it's a poetic personification of satan the dragon he's a sea serpent he's a dragon he he's cunning and wise like all the mythology speaks of dragons and he lives in the sea which is the place of the abyss where you know where the demons come up out of this is ancient hebrew cosmology and so the leviathan is satan and one day he will destroy satan in that day i should say so at the beginning of the messianic age he says he will destroy satan and um Well, it would be nice if we could pull this up real quick. It's uh, Matthew 10, maybe. If I cast out demons in the power of Beelzebub, then Satan's kingdom is divided. But if I cast out demons by the power of the Spirit, then the kingdom has come, right? And did Jesus cast out demons by the power of the Spirit? If he cast out demons, he was demonstrating that he had power over Satan, over Leviathan, that he he could tame behemoth. He could put a hook in Leviathan's mouth. And then he says, you don't you don't go into a house and, and try to rob the house first. First, you go into a house and you tie up the strong man, the, the head of the house, and then you rob all of his stuff. And Jesus is saying that I have come to tie up Satan, to bind him with a chain, as the book of Revelation says, to slay Leviathan so that then I can raid his house, which is the nations that he ruled. And so in that day. Isaiah is prophesying the, the defeat of Satan, which Jesus accomplished um, at his ascension. Now, did he utterly defeat him? No, we, we learn in the book of Revelation that there is one more last step. He must be released for a short period of time, and then he will be utterly defeated and cast into the lake of fire. But right now, it's debated as to where he is precisely. Some people say he's already in hell bound. Other people say that he is on earth, and I'm not exactly sure on that one. I have to, I'll keep studying. But one thing I do know is he's not in heaven, mm-hmm. right? And he doesn't have the power to blind the, the minds of the nations from the gospel. He has been restrained in some way by some sort of angel chain, right? By some sort of bind. <clears throat> and this is what Isaiah is prophesying here. God will destroy Satan, but not just, straight, not just Satan, all the demons and all the enemies of God. Right. <clears throat> Moving on. In that day, not only will he destroy the evil one. And keep on destroying the evil ones, building his church and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell and not be able to prevail. But in that day, the messianic age, look what else would happen. Verse two, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. In that day, a pleasant vineyard. He's going to plant a vineyard. Right. right. He's got to plant a beautiful vineyard. Now, we know that vineyard. Is comprised of Jew and Gentile grafted into the stump of Jesse, right? You know this metaphor; it's all over the Bible. And we're supposed to sing of that. I, the Lord, am its keeper, right? Jesus said, "I'm the the. You are the vine. I am the vine dresser. I am the keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. He protects it. Now, who is this? What is this vineyard that he will establish? Yeah, his church, his people, his people comprised of Jew and Gentile. um, Both as one, as Paul says in the book of Galatians and Romans and many other places. And then um, my notes, I don't have a three and four. I don't I don't know what happened there, but but skip down to six. Verse six, in days to come, Jacob shall take root. So who's Jacob got This is Old Testament imagery, and so it takes a long time to study the Bible and be able to read it quickly. But Jacob is Israel. That's right. It's the other name for Israel. And in, in the New Testament, that's us. Paul says in Galatians six sixteen that the church is the Israel of God. Paul says that the church is the true Israel. When you read Israel in the Old Testament, or Jacob, and you read promises, that's for us. Jew and Gentile as one, grafted into that olive branch. And so here we say in that day, in that messianic age, he's going to begin the process of slaying the dragon, planting a beautiful vineyard, and that vineyard will take root. Israel shall blossom. That's us. And put forth shoots and fill a small little tiny minuscule part of the earth. No, that's not what it says. I read it wrong. And fill the whole world with fruit. So, when Jesus comes and establishes his messianic rule, which began 2,000 years ago when he was given the kingdom from the Father at the ascension, sit in my right hand until... I put your enemies under your feet. He must continue to reign until he defeats all of his enemies, all of the Leviathan's strongholds, all of his kingdom, all of his empire. He will stay at the right hand of the father until he has accomplished all that. The last enemy defeated after all of those is death. And then the end will come when he will hand over the kingdom to his father. So he is going to be at the right hand of the father doing all of this. And he's been doing it for 2000 years. He's still doing it today, defeating enemies. As he said to Jacob, you will possess the gates of your enemies. That means you will run the town. All right? That's gonna, that has happened, continues to happen, and will happen even more in the future. And the poetry is that there will be a root, and it will send out shoots into the whole world, to every nation of the whole world, a fulfillment of what promise? The Abrahamic promise that you will be a blessing to all nations, and those branches over the whole world will bear fruit. And anything good that comes from this world, out of this world, is through that fruit. Anything that abides and is beautiful and wonderful and great for humanity is because the, the church has spread out like the stars of the sky, like the sand of the seashore, like a vineyard spreading out its shoots over the whole earth and bearing fruit so that the nations might taste everything that comes from Jesus, the seed of Abraham. Universities, that's from Jesus. Hospitals, from Jesus. Peace, wherever it exists, Jesus. Uh, Women, actual women's rights, Jesus. Um, Right, the right ones. Um, Not murdering babies, Jesus. Um, Small infant mortality rates, Jesus. Long life expectancy, Jesus. Medicine, Jesus. Scientific discoveries, Jesus. Technological advancements, Jesus. All of that. Beating plowshares, beating your swords into plowshares. All the fruit of Jacob, and we sure do enjoy a lot of it here in, in uh, Acadiana, don't we? I hope we don't forget that. And was that a part of the promise? Did God say that he would cause the descendants of Abraham to multiply and to be fruitful? Yes, that's, it's just a fulfillment of the promise that he made to Abraham. Is that the gospel? Yes, Paul said the gospel was preached to Abraham before and he believed it. I hope you believe it. Because when Abraham believed it, it was imputed to him as righteousness. That's how you get saved. Is believe in the good news and this isn't just a prophecy that we sit around and, and and clap for although we do that rejoice we sing a song of it it says we sing a song we should sing songs filled with joy and hope because we know not only that this will happen but we know the game plan we got in a huddle and God told us the game plan that that changes things we know the future now, we know that there's going to be times where we have to go in our chamber and shut the door. There's going to be times of discipline. We're going to talk about that. But we know the overall game plan. And so we can rejoice and we can trust the Lord and we can participate in bearing fruit here in Acadiana. Amen? All right. Look, at, uh, look down at verse 15 in this chapter. I'm just going to skip down real quick. 26:15. But you have increased the nation. Am I reading that correctly? Is that the right verse? Is it 27.15? Okay, 27.15. Well, well, I'll read the verse and maybe someone will find the number. It's 26.15. Okay, I was right the first time. That's right. Just saying. Pride, you know know what they say about pride, right? All right, 26.15. But you have increased the nation, O Lord, You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. So not only fruitfulness, but multiplication, multiplication, increased population of evildoers. No, of the church of Jacob. That's right. We see clearly here prophecy that in that day. Jesus will begin slaying the dragon. He will bind him. He will plant a vineyard, its branches will go over the whole earth, it will produce fruit, all the nations will be blessed, and there will be increased multiplication, right? Does that align with the the teachings of the New Testament? Jesus said the kingdom is like leaven that spreads and fills the whole earth. Jesus said it's like a mustard seed that begins gradually until it is a tree that its branches follow the whole earth. It's all over the New Testament. You say, but But we're not sure what in that day is. Perhaps in that day is after Jesus comes back a second time. Oh, no, 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 no. Peter said very clearly in Acts chapter 2 that it began there. He said, these men are not drunk as you suppose, that this is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And Joel wrote in Joel 2, in the last times, in that day, God will pour out his spirit on all mankind. And, And I could, there's... Dozens and dozens of verses Hebrews says chapter one in old times. He spoke to to you through the prophets But in these last times in these last days, he has spoken to you by his son That is a technical term that's repeated all over the old and the new testament to refer to the messianic age The age of the messiah ruling and saving this world and you and I Amen All right now if this is fruitfulness and multiplication promised to the church at large, does this apply to Christ church in particular? Well, yes, of course, right? Yeah. Yes, God promises multiplication and fruitfulness to the faithful. And we would be absolute ungrateful jerks if we didn't look around and recognize his faithfulness with all the fruit and the multiplication around here. Look at those little children out there at the steps of Christ Church Academy. I remember that picture had five kids in it, (laughs) all right? (laughs) And look at it, it's a little army out there. A little uh, holy nation, a royal priesthood out there, just growing and growing. I think that's fantastic. We have to give God um, the credit for that, and we have to be thankful and, uh, and, and we can't take that for granted, because if we're not faithful, then what happens? Yeah, it doesn't continue. He, he will not be mocked. You reap what you sow, right? Good. Now, does this mean that multiplication and fruitfulness happens overnight? No, like everything, like sanctification, it's gradual. He unfolds his promises gradually. And so you can reap a harvest if you persevere. If you persevere, and I really do in many ways feel sorry for some of the people early in the school that didn't persevere and quit so soon because I, it would have been way better for them if they would have stuck it out. It Wasn't always easy times. We had small budgets or no budgets. Um, <laughs> you know, we we're just trying to make, make it one day at a time. And a lot of people just, they couldn't hold, they needed the programs now, they needed this now, they needed that now, and they couldn't be patient and they couldn't wait. And I really think they missed out. But, but if you persevere, and not just at the academy, that's just in my life, whatever your job is and your family, and if you don't grow weary, you can expect multiplication and fruitfulness in your life as well. Amen? Does this mean that at any given snapshot, the numbers will always be increasing? No, of course not. It's a trend. It's a trend, right? God's not a machine, right? He's not a machine. He's not... You can't put him in a box. He's not predictable like that. But you can, you can generally predict an upward trajectory if you're faithful. But you can't just take one snapshot. It's like looking at your stock portfolio. You don't want to look one day, you'll be discouraged, <laughs> right? And I'm not just making that up as a, a defense. It's, the Bible always talks about multi generational faithfulness because he's talking to us as a corporate group. That's why it has to be multi generational. You see what I mean? All right, good. Does this mean that um, numerical growth is our ultimate goal? No, of course not. If you go for that, you lose it. You have to go for faithfulness to God in order to gain it. Does this mean we will be the biggest church in town? No, obviously not. But I would like to see if we remain faithful for 200 years. I'd like to know know the numbers at that point. Um, And uh, does this mean we can engineer it? No, it's a gracious act of God. Acts 2.47, it says this, The Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. It's always the Lord that adds to the number. Our job is to be faithful and to do what he calls us to do. Amen? Amen? All right, now. Go back in time to Isaiah's day, and we're going to move to um, verse 7. Because before he can... Uh, 27, I think. Yeah, you tell me. <laughs> My, I have to put notes because I'm blind, and I don't always put everything on here. So I have the verse number, though. It's 7. Um, where was I? Uh, before he can destroy Leviathan... And plant that, that new vine, so that, and then it grow, and, and bless the whole world with its fruit. Before that can happen, three things have to happen first. From Isaiah's perspective, these three things have already happened in human history. But in Isaiah's day, when he looks down the prophetic timeline toward the Messiah coming, three things have to happen. And that's what he's about to list here. And it's amazing... Um, if you know the historical narrative and the, and the way God unfolded history, it's am, well, I mean, it's not amazing, but it's very accurate, okay? Because God, obviously, God said it, but you'll see here. Look at verse 7. The first thing that has to happen is that the people of God have to be purged by judgment. All right, purged by judgment. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Right? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain meaning is God going to destroy Israel like he did Assyria? no right And this does bring up there's two types of judgment judgment on the enemies of God which is absolute eradication and destroy and destruction and the disinheritance um, and the complete uh, redistribution of all that they have to the to the to the righteous. That's, that's one type of judgment. But the second type of judgment in the Bible, when it talks about God's sovereign judgment, is for his church, and it's never absolute. It's like a really hard beating, right? Um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? And, and one of the ways that it makes the church stronger is that it weeds out the tares. It's like the, the farmer comes in and weeds for a season, you know, turns up the heat for a season, and everything that didn't have root dies. That's not fun even if you have root, though. You understand what I'm saying? Those times happen that judgment comes on a church, and it purges the church. Any place where there is increased persecution, the church is pure, purer than when it is cool to be a Christian, right? Or it's good for business, I, I know of uh, my wife is an agent, real estate agent, and she has agent friends. They go to like a bunch of churches, they'll, and they'll even have in their bios that they list the churches that they attend, because they're just building. They're building their uh, their network, their client base. Right. Well, I promise you, when it's not cool to be a Christian, and there's persecution, real persecution, they won't keep going. You understand what I'm saying? um so he does this he judges and he doesn't absolutely destroy even though on the outside it looks the same it looks like the christians and the non-christians are getting the same treatment you understand Um, and but paul says it like this paul says um, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed that's the difference Uh, perplexed but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed so he, there's, that's the distinction. When, when the sun comes up, all the plants that don't have root die. But the ones that have root live, even though they go through the pain. Understand? And that's going to happen in America. Almost certainly. Almost certainly. That's going to happen in America. Um, <clears throat> verse 7, I mean, verse 8. Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. So he's not going to wipe them out like the Assyrians. What's he going to do to them? He's going to exile them. And we know they, they get exiled into Babylon. And it says, by exile, I will contend with them. That word contend means to reason with them, to teach them, to argue with them. Right? He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. He's going he's to blow them away. With the east wind That east wind is the sirocco winds have y'all heard that b- phrase before the sirocco winds it's a east wind it's very very strong hurricane like but it comes and it goes quick doesn't it doesn't last forever he's going to send a hurricane and blow them out of the promised land into exile into Bab- babylon to reason with them and contend with them that's what's going to happen and what is he trying to teach them yeah, to, to trust him, to obey him. Don't turn to Egypt. Don't turn to your political allies. Don't tu- turn to your idols. But trust me. That's what he teaches us. He d- and he does that for us individually. He gives us prosperity, and then he gives us persecution to contend with you. Mm. Right? He takes things away from you sometimes so that you can learn all you need is him. So you can learn the secret of contentment. So he does the same thing for us individually as he does for the church corporately as well. Um, Proverbs 22:15. some of y'all this is your life verse right now um, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him Amen parents Amen, Amen. You Gotta use that rod if you want to get that foolishness out of the heart of your children um, But we're god's children And so we get judged in that sense we get spanked so that the foolishness Can be taken out of us and that happens to you individually as a family that might happen to us as a church. I imagine one day it will. Um, and it happens to nations as well. And, uh, and when God spanks, uh, he puts the fear of God in you. <laughs> Unlike some of the spankings I've seen around here, just saying. <laughs> <So> <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 good, you. <laughs> no, when God spanks, right, Tori? Like, Tori, you put the fear of God in them. You make it count. That's right. Not too much, not too much. All right. All right. All right. All right, verse 9, verse 9. Fifteen minutes to go. Any thoughts or questions? All right, are y'all awake? Y'all awake over there? Okay, good. Doing good. Don't say trying. All right. <laughs> verse 9. If you, if you have a Bible and you're looking through it, it helps, by the way. Verse 9. Therefore by this the guilt of jacob will be atoned for all right by the exile by the discipline by the judgment i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna help them i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm going to convince them of the gospel and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces you see what he's saying is through this punishment through this spanking I'm going to drive the foolishness out of them. Show them who their real God is. I'm going to save them, right? I'm going to save them. And then it says, and what's the evidence of you getting saved or sanctified, learning a lesson? That altar, that idol that God exposes in your life, you grind it into chalk. That's the evidence. You know you've been saved when your idols are piles of chalk all around you. But you still got some, right? And... um, and he'll expose it, and you grind it to chalk. And that's how you know you're saved, and, and that's how you know he ha- he, you learned your lesson from your spanking. Right? Amen. I know I've gone through that. I'm sure you have as well. Um, no ashram or incense altars will remain standing. And that is literally what happens for them nationally. They go into Babylon. They repent. They cry out to the Lord. He sends the Persians to destroy the Babylonians, and Cyrus the Great, uh, he raises up Cyrus the Great, and Cyrus the Great sends all the Jews, all the faith, all the ones that believe in the promised land, you know, all the, the lots and all the people that don't believe in the promised land, they're going to stay in the big city with all the football programs and the a- accreditations and everything. They're going to stay there in Babylon. But all the faithful that believe in the future promises are going to go to the promised land, and they're going to restore worship at the temple and build the wall. That's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, Right. And that's under the Persian Empire. And there's a massive revival. And uh, you can read all about this revival. And they crush all their, their false gods. And they divorce all their pagan g- wives that hate Jesus. And the nation is reborn. It's a, a wonderful time. And they rebuild the temple. And, uh, and that was the temple, or at least part of it, when, when Jesus came. Um, but this shows you, though, I think, if you want to see national change, if you want to see the tyrant defeated, if you want to see liberation and be freed, there has to be repentance. Like, there's no future hope if your idols don't turn to chalk. Understand what I mean? There's no 100-fold, there's no prosperity without repentance and crushing your idols. The only way America is going to um, be saved from its impending judgment is if we begin a a process of crushing our idols, our idols. What are some of the idols of America? Yeah, putting ourselves first, selfishness, sure. Yeah, um, you know, materialism, trusting in the God of mammon would be like the New Testament way of saying that, huh? The the state is our number one idol, right? Which is an extension of the self. Right? We all just want to get the state to make us that. Ta- we all want the state to steal our neighbor's money for us. And we all just fight who gets whose money stolen. Right? And in some sense, like, there's that impulse that if you focus all of the power into one person or to one entity like that, it can, yeah. it can change nature. Yeah, that's exactly what Egypt believed. With Pharaoh and, and God always embarrasses that I mean look we have a we have what are our great two options we have two embarrassments really and God is like look Christians you want to keep worshiping the state right yeah you've heard me say this a million times so I'll move on all right one more thing that has to happen wait no yeah no two more things this is the second thing that has to happen Before he can slay Leviathan and plant the vineyard and bless the whole world. Verse 10. For the fortified city is solitary. A habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calves graze. There it lies down and strips its branches. That's uh, cows, what they do to the fruit trees, the little trees. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. What is the fortified city that that God must destroy before he plants his global vineyard? It's Jerusalem. That's right. It's Jerusalem. He has to burst the old wineskins to make way for the new wineskins. That's another metaphor, meaning the same thing. He has to... um, he has to fulfill um, much of the, the old covenant. He has to chop down, like John says, the axes at the root of the tree. He has to engage in a massive pruning operation so that he can build up his new church with the sap of the Holy Spirit, with him as the trunk. And he lays that new vineyard. And what is the foundation? That the, 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 the prophets and the apostles as the foundation, and we are grafted into that both Jew and Gentile. That's the new vineyard. But before he does that, he has to completely wipe out the old order. Um, This is why you don't see um, real Old Testament Judaism anymore. You don't see sacrifices. You don't see lambs and all of that because there's no temple. There's no priesthood. There's no Ark of the Covenant. He chopped all that down. He eradicated all of it um, because it says they had turned from him. They had turned from him. Verse 12. We get to the third thing that has to happen, and see if you can interpret this. This is Old Testament imagery, so you got to read it, read it carefully. In that day, Messianic age, from the river Euphrates to the Brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain. What's threshing? You know, it's like you have this bundle of wheat stalks and the heads. And there's the little seeds inside the heads and they would take like a big uh, instrument, like a big stick or broom and beat the mess out of it so that the little seeds could fall and be collected. Okay, so he says in that day from this from this region, the Lord is going to thresh out the grain. He's going to do some threshing so that he can get some grain. And you will be gleaned one by one. What's the grain? You. Yeah. It's the church. Israel. And you will be gleaned. That means you will be separated from the chaff one by one through the process of thrashing. Yes. <laughs> Might as well say thrashing. Yeah. Oh, people of Israel. Yep. Yeah. And in that day in the Messianic age, a great trumpet will be blown. Old Testament imagery for? evangelism that's right and those who were lost in the land of assyria and those who were driven out to the land of egypt all the places where they're exiled right and spread out and now remember in old testament imagery they're not talking they're not going to say cancun or you know the or canada or even finland they it's all in uh, it's all in the promised land but it's a type of the whole earth and they will come and worship the Lord. So what is happening? In that day, in the Messianic reign, he will slay Leviathan, right? He will plant his vineyard, and he will begin to thrash. And what, is, and what does the Bible say? He rules with a rod of iron, and, and with it he breaks the pots into, into pieces. He, he thrashes the nations, beats the nations with, his, with judgment, so that the elect fall out one by one the grains and and they come and they gather and it says look right here and worship the lord on the holy mountain at jerusalem what is the holy mountain zion and in that's old testament imagery for the church at jerusalem which is old testament imagery for the church the new jerusalem right? so you see what's going to happen in the messianic age he's going to beat the bad guys He's going to bless the world with, his, with fruit, right? And he's going to thrash the nations until all the elect are gathered into the church and saved. And, and this is the imagery of it, but Paul says these things explicitly in the New Testament, which helps us interpret it, right? Um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, if you don't remember when I preached on this, but you have come, you Christians, Hebrews, you Christians have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Right? That's thing if you're a Christian and, and you join the church, it's because God has been doing some thrashing and you fell out of the out of the uh, the chaff and gathered gathered him into a, a, a holy nation, a church. Isn't that awesome? I think that's pretty cool. So we don't. We can't engineer the salvation of the nations. Like, we have to just do what we're told. Because it's something that God ultimately does. You understand what I mean? We, we can't just get really, really rich and buy all the, the land. right? <laughs> that's not how it's going to work. It's going to work through God's processes. Although I do in, encourage that. But that's not, there's no technique that we can pull off to, to save the world. God's going to save the world. We just have to do our little meager callings. Amen? Amen. Uh, Well, that's the end of this section. Chapter 28 starts a new section, so we'll stop there. Y'all have a good evening. Yeah, sure.